This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with back in Antioch and back in the saddle. Timothy joins Paul and Silas. The gospel comes to Philippi. Paul and Silas in jail and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Jesus often does the unexpected. He's difficult to predict. His disciples find him astonishing and surprising at times. And then we, as those who are looking over their shoulders, reading their eyewitness accounts in the four Gospels, are sometimes astonished as well. We know the stories well, but then Jesus doesn't behave the way, or seem to behave the way, we expect him to. One case of that is Matthew chapter 15, Jesus and the Canaanite woman. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about this account, Dr. John Bombaro, Director of Theological Education for Eurasia, for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of a column titled The Gospel for Dogs, Grace, in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Dr. Bombaro, welcome back. Thanks for welcoming me, Todd. I appreciate it. What's the apparent problem with Matthew 15, 21 through 28 account of Jesus and this Canaanite woman? The apparent problem is isolating this text from its relationship to the preceding pericope. It's one that we also know well. It's when Jesus narrates what defiles a person, but also what comes after it. In verse 29 through 31, Jesus heals many. When we pull this text out of those two and don't read it the way that we ought to be reading it, and the way that we actually have it within our lectionaries, where the pericopes succeed one another, and, and we can build on and see the interconnection and how all of Matthew hangs together. Again, when we isolate this text from its relationship to the pericopes around it, and we fail to see that Matthew is giving us a grand announcement of the Messiah and the year of Jubilee in chapter 1, moving all the way to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God, then verses 10 to 20 seem to be about the woman and the woman's faith. Even the heading of this pericope in the English Standard Version and other versions is entitled, The Faith of the Canaanite Woman. Well, this text isn't principally about the Canaanite woman. It's, it's about Christ and the Holy Gospel. So when this passage is isolated, then we wind up with preachers and commentators that are working on a mere surface, and they're missing the guiding dynamics of the law and the gospel. Or worse still, they're not taking a Christological approach to the text, but rather an anthropological approach, making this passage about the woman's faith rather than the person, the work, the word, and supremely in, in this text, the gospel of, of Christ himself. Why is there a temptation to make this account about the woman's faith? Well, there's a sense in which it's really unavoidable because Jesus highlights the woman's faith in verse 29, exclaiming, O woman, great is your faith. Additionally, it seems as if her plea to Jesus is answered because of her faith. That is, that her faith warrants the exorcism of her daughter. Verse 30 reads, 
be it done for you as you desire, Jesus responding to her, uh, almost as if uh, her faith has caused this to happen. And, and so the, the result is that in verse 30, her daughter was healed instantly. The temptation stems from the assumption that there's a cause and effect relationship at play. And it's also compounded by the fact that our reading of scripture can be terribly anthropocentric, terribly man-centered. And her faith is obvious in the text, but what engendered that faith and how it was gifted to her is not so immediately obvious. Hence the importance of looking at where this pericope is situated. The temptation, I think, is as simple as this, looking to find the gospel within the woman herself. We, we look to her faith, her testimony then becomes the gospel to which we can relate and so gin up faith, gin up trust ourselves. But that's not the gospel of God. In fact, the gospel isn't found in this woman at all. She isn't the good news. Rather, this episode is about the power of the gospel of Christ to engender faith, even from a distance, in the same way that Christ in the same text will cast out a demon from a distance. All he need do is speak the word. All needs to happen is a preacher to preach the word. So God's word does the work. His word and grace and renewal changes everything, even for the worst of sinners, or at least as we're seeing in this text, whom we might think, or the disciples might think, is actually the worst of sinners. What did it mean that this woman dared to approach Jesus in public? Well, we have to understand who she is. Instead of personifying a gospel of persistence and you know exemplary faith, what she actually does is embody human lostness and alienation in her person due to sin. She's an outsider, just like all of us Gentiles are outsiders until we're saved by God's grace. But it's important for us to know that she is named in here as a Canaanite woman. St. Mark denominates her in chapter 7, where this same situation is uh, rehearsed again in verses 24 to 31. He calls her a Syrophoenician woman. Now, it's important for us to remember that Canaan, or this Syrophoenician region here, was an area that was, it was an inheritance to the Israelites, but they never occupied that territory. From the Old Testament times, it was always dominated by the Phoenicians, and it was so in Jesus's day by the Romans. And this is an important detail. She occupied a land that rightly belonged to the Israelites as part of their inheritance, and so was loathed by the Jews. Not to mention, as a Canaanite, she would have been assumed to have been guilty of idolatry, a pagan. So she's an outsider, she's an idolater, she would have been considered by nature an enemy of the Jews, an enemy of the living God. In other words, she personifies sin. So much so that the rabbis referred to Canaanites and the Syrophoenicians as dogs. Now, dogs here are not cute little lap dogs or the kind of wonderful pets that we enjoy at home as companions. No, dogs means here unclean animals, filthy, garbage-picking scavengers. And, and she's, her condition is even exasperated by this. She is utterly desperate. She's crying out because her 
daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, we don't have any more insight than that, but she is utterly helpless and hopeless in this situation. And there, it's compounded by the fact that in that culture, in Semitic culture, she was breaking all of the sociological norms of the day. She wasn't, as a, a Canaanite, to approach an Israelite. And that, that just didn't happen. But in her desperation, she does that. What is more, she's a woman. And her woman would have been considered a disadvantage as well. And women just didn't approach men unbidden in ancient Semitic cultures, much less a rabbi like Jesus. And then she cries out to him in public, and that was not to take place. Women weren't to address men in public, much less to be crying out to them and causing a scene. But she tramples all of these social and cultural norms in the dust because, because Jesus is her last resort. Why is it important then that she, when she addresses Jesus, she calls him son of David and then pleads for his mercy? Yeah, well, this is the key right here, because in those words, in that confession, Lord, son of David, it gives us the insight to the gospel of this entire pericope. And she's coming to Jesus as her last resort, but she has good reason to do so, because earlier in Jesus's ministry, People from Sidon and Tyre had gone to hear about Jesus. They saw what he did in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 8, and again in Luke, chapter 6, verse 17. People from Tyre and Sidon heard Jesus' kingdom of God message, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and it was breaking in and through him. Hence the healings. They were illustrating the gospel and that he was the one who wields the gospel and makes it uh, effective, that he embodies the gospel. The gospel is him. And so the people from Tyre and Zidon go back and they proclaim this. And she understands, she has this deeper insight to who Jesus is, just in the same way that Peter, in just this past week's pericope, confesses Jesus to be the Christ, and our Lord says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but our Father who is in heaven. Likewise with her, in the proclamation of the gospel, faith is given. She's illumined to the truth about who Jesus is, and so she goes to him, breaking all of these cultural norms and crying out to the only one that can actually dispense mercy and so she calls him Lord, son of David. And it's important for us to understand that that's messianic language, specific messianic language. To say son of David is to say the one who is in the lineage of David, who rightly belongs upon the throne, the anointed of God. And that she's calling him Lord is that there's kind of a double entendre here. Not just Lord is high ranking, but evocative of the name of the God of Israel the one and only true and living God. What she is doing here is creating a complete distance between herself and the pagan religions of the Seraphonicians, of the Canaanites, and aligning herself with the promises of God given in the Hebrew scriptures. And then she appeals to Jesus because if he is the one who is the gospel, if the kingdom of God is breaking in and through him, all he need do is speak the word. So you're saying that even before she approaches Jesus, she has apparently, given the way she addresses him, 
heard enough of the true gospel to identify Jesus as that Messiah and to trust in him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it comes out multiple times. She calls him Lord, not once, not twice, three times in here. They have an exchange that goes back and forth on five occasions here. And she's always respectful to call him Lord, call him and address him by this very Jewish term. In other words, she's aligning herself with, with Jewish speak, with Jewish religion here, calling Jesus the son of David. So this is very much a confession of faith on her part. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So is it significant that Matthew tells us, and he answered her not a word? Yeah, it's really significant. In, in fact, it sets up the drama and, and, and brings it right to this apogee, namely that we would anticipate Jesus at this point to, to turn and to, to speak to her, to uh, offer her comfort and compassion. But instead of compassion, he turns his face from her. He, he ignores her like she's not even there. But it's really a setup. Jesus has taken this opportunity to provide a lesson to the disciples who harbor such prejudice against the Canaanites, against the Gentiles, that he needed to find the least likely person in the Jewish worldview of his day to be a recipient of divine grace, to be called the child of God, or or more astonishingly still, a, a child of Abraham, a member of Israel, and to pour out God's forgiveness and the riches of the kingdom upon that person. And it turns out to be a Syrophoenician woman who's addressing him in public, breaking all the norms. So Jesus, I see this as a a parallel to John chapter 9. And if you remember, John chapter 9 is about the man born blind. And and the the question is, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But it wasn't about that at all. Jesus said, and this is that you might see the power of God. Just like that, that's what's happening here. Jesus is going to use this occasion to disabuse his disciples of their wrongful kingdom perspectives in order to maximize their understanding of the gospel. And I think what's really interesting is that the the disciples, they ask Jesus to get rid of her and to leave her with nothing. And in fact, the way that they speak is evocative of the same entreaty that she has with respect to her daughter. The disciples want Jesus to cast her from them in the same way that Jesus would cast a demon from the daughter. And so subtly, Matthew is intimating that as far as the disciples are concerned, they see this dog as tantamount to a devil herself who should receive nothing. She's a Canaanite, and she's already been, as it were, canceled by God and, and could not possibly be a recipient of mercy. So drive her away. Send her away just like you do with the demons into swine. But that's where things are going to change. And instead of getting nothing, Jesus has set them up, and he's going to do so by speaking the gospel. So before we get there, he, it says he answered her not a word for... God Almighty to refuse to speak to someone, because that ultimately is what he's going to do. He's going to speak, and the daughter will be healed. He's going to speak, and he's going to acknowledge her faith. You say he's setting her up and the disciples up by, not, by initially doing one of the worst things God can do to a person. That's remain silent. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I, he, he's setting her up, but he already knows what he's going to do. Uh, there's no mystery to what's going on here. He already knows the hearts of people. This is a setup for specifically the disciples. And, and part of that is because Matthew's gospel is really written for the ministerium, for pastors and, and, and priests of the church. And we get a chance to read as we read through Matthew with, with, with all parishioners and all Christians. We get to read what God is speaking specifically to the ministerium. And here, we're getting an example of to whom the gospel is to be preached and to purge from ourselves the prejudices we may have with respect to who is a worthy and an unworthy recipient of the holy gospel. And it turns out that we can't go low enough because and when we go that low, it turns out that we ourselves are the ones that need his word of exorcism. Yeah, for God to turn his face from someone is to be cut off according to the Holy Scriptures. An episode in the book of Esther where Haman has so offended the king that they have to hide the face of the king from him. At that point, the turning of the face of the king is to cut him off. It is the end. And that's what it appears is the case right here. But what I see also is Jesus turning from her and turning toward the disciples. And now in her hearing, he has set up the whole situation to turn it upside down. Where we thought there was going to be no compassion, it's going to turn out to be maximal compassion. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What does that mean? Well, that's the bit of the gospel that unlocks the text, Todd. So it's true. Christ has not been sent to those except to the lost sheep of Israel. We cannot doubt these words. But what we must understand is this she's already confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king of Israel. In other words, the king represents his people. The king embodies Israel. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the king's people. She's made these connections. She understands this. This is what makes Jesus our representative. This is how he can make a blood atonement on our behalf, how he can take the penalty for us, and how he can also fulfill the law perfectly, or even undergo John's baptism of repentance. He had no sins for which to repent. He did so for us. And that comes out in her confession. Jesus redefines Israel in and around himself so that he is Israel in one person fulfilling Israel's destiny. And so, by extension, those who own him as God's Messiah, those who are united to him by faith, and us in the waters of holy baptism, united to Christ, stand as one incorporated into Israel, into Christ himself. And so this text is about a circumcision of the heart that's done by the Holy Spirit. It's not about a heritage that comes through a genealogy. Rather, this is about an inheritance that comes through the power of the gospel to engender faith. It's about becoming a son, or in this case, a daughter of Abraham. And that we can use the term son, I think, is really important because it elevates women to the status of the firstborn son. All of us are being brought up to that status by the Holy Gospel. And so the final words of this great passage really are pure gospel for those who are once considered dogs. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it turns out that the lost sheep 
looked just like a Canaanite woman. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest. We're talking about Jesus and the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. He does refer to her as a dog. We'll go into a little more detail as to what that would have meant. It's commonly said that heresies are 90% truth and only 10% wrong, but it's the 10% that subverts all of Christian doctrine and all of Christian teaching by the essential errors that they promote. Well, if you're wondering about heresies, both ancient and modern, you should pick up a copy of the August issue of The Lutheran Witness, where we talk about these heresies, their ancient roots, and how to mark and avoid them. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or learn more at our website, witness.lsms.org. Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Trinity Orchard Farm is settled between two rivers showing the way to the water of life. For worship that is reverent, relevant, and refreshing like pure water, or for excellent education in a unique setting, check out our church and school. We're just five miles north of Highway 370 on Highway 94 in St. Charles County. Visit us on the web at trinityorchardfarm.com. That's trinityorchardfarm.com. Our phone number is 636-250-3350. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about Jesus and the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest, author of a column titled The Gospel for Dogs Grace in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. In about 10 minutes, we'll talk with Mark Hemingway about the GOP presidential debate. You described some of this before, John, but what does it mean that Jesus referred to her as a dog? Because, of course, in our 21st century American culture, dogs are the things of affection, they're pets. There, we consider them noble creatures. Yeah, you know, if we were to rewrite this text today, which of course we wouldn't want to change the word of God, but let's just bring the word dog up to speed. You could replace it with rat. I mean, rats are dirty, filthy animals. They live in the streets and the sewers. That was the case for dogs back in the day, save for very few breeds and for a very specific company. But that's the way the dogs were understood. I, you know, I, I think my first encounter with uh, something like this was in Holy Scripture itself speaking about a dog going back to its vomit and lapping it up. Uh, the the ancient view of dogs were there was the kind of beast that ate its own feces and such. It, it's very derogatory. Now, mind you, the, the reputation and the affection that we have for dogs has been thoroughly rehabilitated, but this is not the case in, in this text and certainly not in this setting. And why is it important? Because Jesus is setting in juxtaposition what he says uh, the kingdom of God looks like and to whom it consists. And he's, he's doing this for the sake of the disciples. And this woman is going to be the living illustration of it. Or put differently, this dog is going to be the living illustration of it. Or perhaps more for the modern ears, this rat 
this filthy rat is going to be the living illustration of it. And, and this is why Jesus says, it isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And now what we have to understand here is that Jesus isn't kicking this poor woman when she's down and, and coming in her desperation, asking for a miracle for the exorcism of her daughter. And I don't think he's giving her the back of his hand. And he specifically uses the Greek konerios, dog here. And there have been some commentators who have tried to argue that, well, this could mean like the cute little lap dog and such, but there's literally no substantiation for that. And uh, our, our, our own Concordia commentary does a, a fine job of debunking that notion. Really, the term dog is very important for us to, to own in this understanding and to see it at the level of the, of the dirty sewer rat so that we can see how far she has been elevated, where she has come from in terms of a sociological perspective and even a socio-religious perspective, the elevation now into the kingdom of God and all this for the sake of the disciples. Yes, she's the recipient of, of grace, sheer grace, but the magnitude of the text the onus really falls on that the disciples are walking away here with a big lesson. So it turns out that this episode is a master class on divine compassion and gospel proclamation from the master himself. And Jesus here in this text, and, and using this word dog is important, evidences his heart for the lost. What kind of lost? N not merely sheep, but even the dogs, those that we consider dogs in society, and how then we are to esteem each person as a potential recipient of divine grace. So in Christ's kingdom, there are only the baptized and those that he desires to be baptized, and that's supposed to be the disposition of his pastors, of his under-shepherds. And it turns out then that the gift of faith that came with the proclamation of the gospel is the great equalizer within the kingdom of God, elevating dogs to the status of firstborn sons who inherit all, age, sex, socioeconomic status, race, and even this neighborhood notwithstanding. None of these things factor in. Circumcision, uncircumcision mean nothing. It is all Christ, it is all the gospel, and it is through this proclamation of the gospel that she received faith, she received grace. So it's the gospel for dogs. You know, Luther said on his deathbed that we're beggars all. He could have said, we're all dogs receiving crumbs from our master's table. You say that the disciples should have seen this coming. What do you mean by that? It's kind of back to the context that we spoke of at first. Yeah, in the, in the preceding text in Matthew, this is chapter 15, verses 10 to 20, which right up to this text, Jesus teaches them what really defiles a person, and conversely, if we take it by his extension, what really justifies a person. He says in that text, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Well, we know in Scripture, as it interprets itself, that no one is going to confess Jesus Christ to be the true Kyrios, to be the true Lord, to be true Messiah, except by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit works through the Word. So here we have a graphic encounter with the most prejudice-worthy person imaginable, a Syrophoenician woman, a veritable dog. 
And Jesus takes the teaching one step further. He's saying ethnicity doesn't defile a person, but neither does it vindicate them. So don't think that your circumcision makes you more entitled as opposed to the uncircumcised. So I think it's a really important point for today, especially as we talk about privilege or we castigate people for supposed privileges or with respect to particular ideologies like wokeness and such. Nothing is going to justify a person. There is no virtue signaling that brings about a justification. The only thing that can possibly justify a person is the gift of faith in Jesus Christ who makes a blood atonement for us. So the important aspect of this in this pericope here is that the, the disciples needed to hear this gospel too, or they would hardly have a gospel to proclaim outside of just the Jews. So finally, how would you bring this all around? What is the gospel in this account? Well, it's first set up by her embodiment of the law and her acknowledgement that she is a dog, as we are all dogs before the divine standard, sinners dead in our trespasses and sins. And then comes the gospel sweeping her, even a Canaanite woman, even one considered a dog, an enemy, to these soaring heights. So the gospel is founded that she is revealed as a daughter of Israel according to Christ's definition and evidenced by what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. The gospel of God's Messiah had given her a new heart of faith. According to Old Testament scriptures like Ezekiel 36, verse 25, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and of course Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Hence Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Well, it is great indeed. You know, Jesus had once juxtaposed Peter for his little faith, because Peter stopped believing when Jesus called him and bid him out onto the water. But this woman, even this kind of woman stacked with every social prejudice, receives great faith. And if she can receive great faith, such that warrants the public approbation of the Messiah himself, well, the gospel is this, that anyone can. And Jesus is compassionate enough to bring it. Dr. John Bombaro is Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, author of a column titled The Gospel for Dogs, Grace in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. You can read it at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. John, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure, Todd. Thank you. Mark Hemingway, senior writer for Real Clear Investigations, will be with us on the other side of the break. For the remainder of the program, we'll talk about the GOP presidential debate. Jesus describes baptism as new birth. Dr. Richard Davenport, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. As big a deal as your own birth was, this should be that much and more. Learn more about this new Bible study, The Baptismal River, at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040.
Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. The saints at Pilgrim Lutheran Church in Kilgore, Texas are strangers and exiles on earth seeking a homeland in heaven. If you are in East Texas, visit in person. Otherwise, visit online at www.pilgrimlc.org. I shall follow where you guide. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org slash deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess.